seated. Through the rest of the summer, we're still in this series called The God Who Lives. And we're looking at stories from the lives of Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings as they bear witness to the God who lives. As they rise up in the midst of a generation and at a time when faith in God had become contestable, that there were other options out there that people were seeking after. And in the midst of that world, Elijah and Elisha didn't stand up to try to argue people into believing in God. They didn't seek to go backwards to resurrect a past. They simply lived as witnesses of a God who lived. They, through the stories of their lives, through their actions and relationships, sought to point us to a living God who is at work in our lives and in the world. And we're looking at these stories to help train our imagination to see the world in this way too, to understand that there is a God who is alive and well and working all around us. This week, we're going to finish the story from last week. We had looked at Naaman and his conversion, his cleansing, and we stopped at verse 19a when he had been sent away. If you remember the story, Naaman is an Aramean general. This is an enemy foreign country. He had clearly been a successful, mighty warrior. He was wealthy. He had everything in the eyes of the world, and yet he had leprosy a skin disease that kept him from connections with others, that kept him out of worshiping life, that left him still on the outside with nothing he could do to solve it himself. A servant girl in his household who happened to be a prisoner of war from Israel, grabbed in one of their raids, said one day, well, if only you could come before the prophet who was in Israel. I know he could heal you of this skin disease. And so Naaman goes, and through the long story we looked at last week, he eventually comes to empty and humble himself, to go down into the Jordan River, to wash seven times and become clean, his skin restored like that of a young boy. And he comes back to the prophet, seeking to give a massive gift to even out the scales in response to this miracle. And Elisha refuses all of it to teach him the lesson that grace is free And so Naaman returns home rejoicing to serve the God of Israel for the rest of his life. We're going to look at the second act of that story this morning. And as we seek to do so, let's pray and invite God to be the one speaking this morning. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom And in your way that we find peace. So come, Lord, shine upon us that we would see you and follow after. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that we love. But when Naaman had gone some distance from Elisha, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, My master, let this Aramean Naaman off the hook by not accepting the gift that he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will go after him and accept something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. 
And Naaman saw him while he was coming and got down from his chariot to meet him and said, is everything all right? And Gehazi responded, yes, but my master sent me to say to you that two young men from the company of the prophets have just now come down from the hills of Ephraim. Give them a kikar of silver and two changes of clothing. Naaman said, of course, take two kikars of silver and encouraged Gehazi to receive them. So he took two kikars of silver and wrapped them up in two bags along with the two sets of clothing. And he gave them to two servants who carried them before Gehazi. And when Gehazi came to the hillside, he took the items from them and stored them in his house. Then sent the servants away and they left. Then Gehazi came and stood before his master Elisha. And Elisha said to Gehazi, Where'd you come from, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi replied. But Elisha said to him, Wasn't my heart going along with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to receive silver and clothes, olive trees and vineyards, sheep and cattle, male or female servants? Naaman's skin disease will cling to you and to your descendants forever. And Gehazi left Elisha's presence flaky like snow with skin disease. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's a bit of a stark transition from last week's story, isn't it? A story about an outsider coming in and finding God, emptying himself, being converted, being healed dramatically and full of grace, being sent out rejoicing to his home to worship the God of Israel. And now this is the second act of the story, something quite different. Why did they give us this story? Why waste the parchment and the ink to preserve this throughout the generations and pass it along to us? Do we need this part of the story, or couldn't it have just ended with the good news of Gehazi going home, or Naaman going home healed? Well, to get there, I think we first have to get clear about what Gehazi does wrong. It's a pretty stark punishment, right? Perpetual generational skin disease that would keep them unclean outside of Elisha's presence because Elisha is the man of God, outside of the community of faith because he's unclean, outside of the worshiping community, outside, like a Gentile, essentially, Gehazi and his descendants forever have become. What did he do to deserve that? Well, there are some options, right? I mean, first of all, he lied. Maybe that has something to do with it. He, he lies first to Naaman. He runs after him. Naaman gets down off his chariot, comes to meet him, and he makes up this whole story about two prophets coming down from the hills of Ephraim in need. He says, Elisha, my master, sent me to you to ask for this car of silver and for two changes of clothing. Spins a whole tale to deceive Naaman into giving this gift. 
And when he returns home, the lie just keeps growing. He now has to lie to his master. He had he'd hidden all the things in his house, and Elisha knows something's up and asks him where he comes from, and he says, I didn't go anywhere. Is it deception? Is it lying? Maybe it's insubordination, because that's in there too, isn't it? Last week in the story, Elisha was very clear that God would not accept a single thing from Naaman and sent him home with all of it. And now his servant, his number two, and if you remember, Elisha had been Elijah's servant. That's what's at stake here. Gehazi is to Elisha like Elisha was to Elijah. And he runs out with this lie, completely circumventing everything his master had done, asking for a gift now in return. And Naaman would go home deceived, thinking that Elisha and therefore God had actually asked for this in return, that grace wasn't free, there was a price that would come undoing everything Elisha had done? Is it insubordination? Is it disobedience to his master, Elisha, who is a servant of God? Is that what he does? Or is it greed? Because I have a feeling that's in there too. He and we with him are overwhelmed by the train of gifts that Naaman had brought. All the silver, all the gold, ten elaborate changes of clothing, all of it that he was willing to just give to Elisha before he left. And Elisha wanted none of it. And Gehazi couldn't believe it. Not take anything? He was willing to give it all away. And he's he's an enemy. He's an Aramean. Take some of it at least. Think of what we could do with it. Is it greed? Is it desire for that money, lusting after it, coveting his neighbor's property, violating that commandment? Greed seems to have something to do with what leads to the deception and the disobedience. Paul was right in 1 Timothy 6. People who are trying to get rich fall into temptation. A good word for us. They're trapped by many stupid and harmful passions that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some have wandered away from the faith and have impaled themselves with a lot of pain because they made money their goal. Is Gehazi one of them that Paul was speaking of? Is it lying? Is it disobedience? Is it greed? I think it actually goes deeper than all of those. This is what Gehazi himself said. My master, let this Aramean Naaman off the hook by not accepting the gift he brought. He let this Aramean off the hook. This Aramean My emphasis in English is trying to make clear what's more clear in Hebrew. There's a racial dig here. It's this Aramean Naaman that's being let off the hook. He makes sure to point out his ethnicity as part of why he's offended and upset by what Elisha has done. It's not just that he's let him off the hook. It's that he's left this Aramean off the hook. And to be fair, Arameans aren't just any other race or ethnicity for a Jew. They're the largest enemy. They've been at war for years. They're sending raiding parties in and carrying off children into slavery. 
this Aramean, their worst enemy, Elisha lets waltz in, heals him, and then just sends him on his way without even accepting a thing he had sought to bring. There's something about what it means to be human after the fall that leads us to clump together with people who are like us. Oftentimes that's in a family, a clan, a race or ethnicity, a nationality, but it goes far beyond that. We have seen that clumping taking place in our culture, Republican, Democrat, Trump, never Trump, mask, no mask, vax, anti-vax, if you listen to Fox News or CNN, we clump together with people who look like us, talk like us, think like us. And it's not just that we gather with them, it's the way we start to look at others. We clump into insiders and outsiders and begin to define our world in this way. And the Bible gave us a story to help understand that in the Tower of Babel, that it was as we sought to build our way to heaven ourselves that we found ourselves fractured in community and in relationship with the people around us. This Aramean, Naaman, gets let off the hook. One of the reasons I think this might be part of it is because this is actually how Jesus understood the story. Jesus references the story of Naaman's healing in Luke chapter 4. It was on the day he had come to preach his first sermon at his home synagogue. He had quoted Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, release to the oppressed, recovery of sight to the blind, and freedom to the oppressed. The year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee, and the people had begged him, do some of the miracles you've been doing out in Gentile territory. And Jesus references the story of Elijah and the Gentile widow and this one. He says, weren't there many of those with leprosy in Israel during Elisha's day? Weren't there a ton of Israelites that suffered from skin disease? And yet Elisha only healed one, Naaman the Syrian foreigner. As you read that story in Luke 4, it's at that moment that the crowd turns on Jesus, runs him out of the synagogue, out of town, and seeks to kill him and throw him off a cliff for having the audacity to say that God's grace and God's healing and God's power might be for our enemies. My master let this Aramean Naaman off the hook off the hook. It's kind of a strange idiom in English. We talked about this in our Bible study on Wednesday because our German friend Michael asked what that meant in English, and we had to find a way to explain it to him, which gave Frank Castelvi the opportunity to tell us this story. He was fishing last weekend down the shore. They have a boat. He loves to go out fishing. He was with his grandson, Frankie, who's four years old. They were out fishing, and after a long day, he caught a 19-inch fluke that it was the best catch he's had of the season. They get it into the boat. This is going to be dinner. It is enough to feed four adults, and plans are being made for how this fish is going to be prepared and cooked and eaten and the celebration that will come. Pride is growing in Frank's heart about this catch. And as he's casting it into the water, he hears a splash. And he turns around, and Frankie's standing there looking at him with a smile on his face. And if you know Frankie, you know that smile, joy and a little bit of mischief. 
And Frank says, what was that? Frankie says, I threw the fish back. Frank says, did you use your hands? He said, yeah. Good boy. The fish had been caught. It wasn't just on the line and on the hook. It was in the boat. Plans were being made. It was as good as dinner. And then, because of the compassion, the mercy, the grace of an innocent child, it was set free. Due to nothing it could have ever, there was nothing it ever could have done to earn that freedom. There was nothing it could ever do to possibly say thank you to Frankie, its savior. It was free. It was off the hook. It was given grace. And to some degree, how dare he let it go, right? We're reminded of the story of Jonah who sent to the enemy nation to go to the city of Nineveh and proclaim in 40 days God would overturn the city. He runs in the opposite direction. And when God finally brings him there to preach that sermon, the people repent and turn back, and God relents from punishing them. And Jonah's pissed. He says, I knew that you were gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, willing to relent from punishing. I knew you'd do something stupid like forgive them. That's why I didn't want to go in the first place. God's grace and mercy are beautiful when they're for us and for those we know and love. But that grace is offensive when it's given to others, to our enemies, to those who don't deserve it. Grace seems unjust at some level on the surface. It is literally getting let off the hook. It is not getting what we deserve. It's being given a gift we can't pay for. It seems unjust that our enemies should not have to pay something back for forgiveness to just be let go scot-free, to be let off the hook. We want grace, and we may someday forgive, but we want the pound of flesh first. We want them to pay for it. We want them to feel the hurt they've given us, and then maybe we'll be able to step out and forgive them for what they've done. That's just not how grace works. Grace is free. There is no cost. When Gehazi gets back, Elisha says to him, is this the time to accept silver and clothes and all these other things? Is this the time? Because there is a time. There is a place to give gifts to God in gratitude for what God has done and for the glory of God and God's kingdom. But is this the time at the front door so that it looks as though it's the price of admission Is this the time to receive these gifts? Grace is supposed to be free, and nothing should be put as an impediment to grace. We should not act in such a way as to give the impression that there might be a cost to grace, a price to be paid on our end. Grace is gift, and it is poured into our lives by God and God alone. Freely we've received, freely give. Too often Israel forgot, and too often we forget alongside them, that we've been chosen by God, not for our own sake, but for the sake of the world, that we've been blessed to be a blessing to the nations, that we've been forgiven in order to forgive. 
that God has drawn close to us, that we can draw others into what God is doing, that nothing God has given us is actually for us. And remember that this story is written down in exile, and the people of God are trying to figure out what it means to live faithfully in a foreign land. When the word of God came to the prophet Jeremiah that we heard last week, instructing the people to pray and to seek peace for the city to which they've been sent into exile, to seek its flourishing, for in its flourishing they'd find their own. They were there to be a blessing. They were there to pour out that which God had given them freely. Freely you've received, freely give. But in Gehazi we find a picture of what it means to not freely receive, but to take for ourselves a life that doesn't understand grace. Jesus said in Matthew 16, all who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me will find them. Why should people gain the whole world but lose their lives? And what will people give in exchange for their lives? The first act of the story last week shows us an outsider who becomes an insider because of the grace of God and because they're willing to empty themselves and humble themselves and receive the gift. This week we see an insider who becomes an outsider because he could not accept the grace of God given to him and to his enemy. That grace is right there before all of us. It is free. It is unwarranted. It is unimaginable and unbounded. There is no cost. It is a fountain that flows deep and wide. And all those who choose to humble themselves and enter into that grace, to turn around and come to Jesus, find power in those waters to be restored that even the filthiest among us can be washed clean and grafted into Christ. But it's also possible to reject that grace, to even be on the inside like Gehazi and miss it, to know all the jargon, to be able to sing all the songs and never grasp the freedom of grace, to think that we somehow deserve all of this and that others need to too, to never come to the end of ourselves, to empty ourselves out of even our best attempts to earn it, to never lay hold of grace like a lifeline in the whelming flood, and so to end up outside the celebration, grumbling about grace and those who found their way into the party. But the thing about grace is that there is still always more. That even there, grace still runs deeper. For Gehazi rejects God and God's grace and goes away a leper. But remember that our God is very specifically in the business of healing lepers. Of going out to find those who are lost. Of pouring out grace on those who don't deserve it and can't earn it. And no price is too high, no pit is too deep, and it is never too late to give it all up, to turn around and come home to Jesus, to surrender to grace, to empty yourself and realize that you haven't earned this, 
that you don't deserve any of this. None of this is yours. And finally then, to receive the free gift in order to give it away. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ, there are some among us who are far away and lost, who on the way home realize that you have actually run out to meet them and welcome them back, that you are there to bring them into the fold and into the family by grace and grace alone, though they know they deserve none of it. Jesus, there are also some among us on the inside, wondering how you could be so casual with your grace and forgiveness. And so somehow find ourselves outside the celebration, rejecting that grace that is a gift. Bring all of us, Lord, to the end of ourselves, to give up thinking that we have earned or deserve any of this, and so to turn to you and to you alone, that you, O Christ, are the rock of our salvation. You and you alone. Your grace is all that we have. And so, Lord, learn to turn around and share that grace with the world that deeply needs to see that forgiveness is possible. Come, O Lord, and grow that grace and dependence upon Christ within each of us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.